tell me I was building a dream And so I followed the mob When there was earth to plow or guns to bear I was always there, right on the job They used to tell me I was building a dream With peace and glory ahead Why should I be standing in line Just waiting for bread Once I built a railroad Made it run Made it race against time Once I built a railroad Now it's done Brother, can you spare a dime? Welcome back, everybody, to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one, titled King of the Road, the Hobo Story, tells of the men who rode and still ride the freight trains, hopping on and off rolling freight cars to experience their own brand of life at whatever stops they choose. A culture unto itself, with its own language and codes of behavior, and without a doubt, a unique piece of American history. There's something in all of us that longs for the kind of freedom that country artist Roger Miller expressed when he wrote the words to his huge hit, King of the Road, in 1964, a song that would win three Grammy Awards in 1965 for Best Song, Best Vocal Performance, and Best Country Western Single. It might have been a very good year for Sinatra, but it was a killer year for Roger Miller. The lyrics told of the day-to-day life of a hobo who, despite being poor, revels in his freedom, describing himself with modest humor as king of the road, and admitting he knew every lock that ain't locked when no one's around, when it came time to call it a day. It was Roger Miller's fifth single for Smash Records, and aptly titled because it was a smash hit, not only in the U.S., but in the U.K., Germany, and every other country that listened to American music. And by 1964, there weren't many that didn't. The lyrics tapped into every person's dream of just chucking it all and living a traveling life with no responsibilities. The song started with the words, Trailers for Sailor Red, which, as Miller told a cheering audience in Norway, were inspired by a Trailers for Sailor Rent sign he'd seen posted on the side of a barn. And the lyrics went on to say, Rooms to let 50 cents. No phone, no pool, no pets. I ain't got no cigarettes. Ah, but two hours of pushing broom buys an eight by twelve, four-bit room. I'm a man of means, by no means, king of the road. Whether you hear it by Roger Miller, or Willie Nelson, or Randy Travis, or even Dean Martin, it hits home every time. The song has been covered by hundreds of singers and still appeals to all ages, all backgrounds, and all nationalities. The theme of leaving the grid has been popularized in every form of media, from Simba's Hakuna Matata in Disney's Lion King to author Lee Child's Jack Reacher action series, and in countless movies. It connects because there's a wanderlust in all of us that dates back to early man, who was always on the move and heading for unknown destinations. I'll never forget one comedian's take on it. You might remember Gallagher, the stand-up comic, who became famous for his bit where he'd hand out raincoats to everyone in the front row, 
and then proceed to smash watermelons with a sledgehammer. Anyway, Gallagher had a story about how man was always migrating westward, leaving the safety of Europe for the New World, risking the boat ride across the stormy seas, then arriving on the east coast of the New World, and then, eyes always on the setting sun, picked up and continued westward, always westward, despite Indians and wide rivers and high mountains, and then snows in the high Sierras. And when finally, finally, they reached the land of fruits and nuts and the Pacific Ocean. Instead of being happy with all that, they were still looking west, so they built a pier. There have always been certain people who live life a little or a lot differently than the rest of us. People on the edge. The hobos enter the life for a number of reasons. Hardships, escaping crimes, feeling a need to get off the grid, adventure, or just plain curiosity. Many get their share and leave it. Others stay with it. We'll cover some of their stories, their unique contributions to the language, and their codes of conduct in the story today. The railroads are much tougher to ride these days, and better guarded. But from 1890 to the late 40s, the golden age of hobos, riding the rails and outrunning the bulls in the shacks was the ultimate adventure for some. We'll cover it all, from the adventure seekers of today to yesterday's hard luck heroes. We're also running Jack London's incredible story, Bulls, about his day as a hobo, over at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And by the time you're finished with that story, you'll feel like you just lived it. It might be adventure for some, but it's death for many others. For two reasons. The first, and most important one being, that besides the fact that hopping trains and even trespassing on tracks is illegal, trying to jump on and then ride a moving mass of steel is extremely dangerous. The second risk is, and was, that there exists a dangerous mixture of the criminal element traveling the rails. That dangerous element being addicts, alcoholics, and others on the run from the law. They're a minority element in the hobo kingdom. The one summer in New Brunswick, I finally got my chance. I remember um, it was nine in the morning and I just went down to the train yard to see if I could catch a train. I didn't know anything about it, didn't know much about any of it and kind of just went down there and took a chance. When I was younger, you know, your heart would pound. You, you know, is the train gonna come? Am I gonna get caught? But I think for the most part these days, it's, it's become more relaxing for me. So I think for me, when I cross over into that realm, like I really, I feel free because I'm kind of going beyond what most people would have the courage to do. When I was in Thailand, I didn't know, I didn't know what the laws were on train hopping. I didn't know maybe I'd get, go to jail for 20 years if I got caught. I mean, for drugs there, they'll put you in jail for life. Maybe it's the same for train hopping. I have a feeling that before this train leaves, someone's gonna come and kick me out. And if you get on somewhere that's not safe or where you're open to the public viewing, you're either going to get busted or you're going to get killed. So as soon as it rolls in, you're, you're scanning the train. You're trying to figure out, OK, where do I want to ride? I'm going to peek too far out there because the tower's on that side. So forgive me for the shit you. Got to play it safe for now. And then once, once it slows down enough, then you make, you know, you get on and get down and hope that nobody saw you and then you take off. It's important to note that in the face of all these risks, the number of people jumping trains has steadily increased over the past 10 years 
as thrill-seekers, homeless, and runaways take the risk, according to a March 11, 2018 article from U.S. News, written by Phil McCausland, entitled, Train Fatalities in the U.S. at a 10-Year High. One adventurer that rose to fame sharing Internet videos of his hobo life was James Stobie. Stobie the Hobo. I found his videos while researching this story, and they're well done, and very scenic. He uses his own piano talent to provide audio background to his narration and video, and he inserts maps, along with his descriptions of lakes and towns, and occasional insights, while he takes us, the viewers, along with him for the ride. What's going on? Greetings, Stove the Hobo. It's on. It's Valentine's Day tonight, and all I can say is I'm definitely single, and I'm excited about it, because I'm free, free to not care about my appearance. I mean, I look ugly and gross right now, and I don't care. I got this silly jacket from the thrift store, which it's five bucks. Basically, I'm gonna jettison it at some point. This was fast, right after I got here. I'm on the engine. We're out of here. So I got some cold beer. This is the new Voodoo Ranger IPA from New Belgium. Pretty decent. I don't really know its example why it's any different than any other IPA, but it tastes good. So you, you who's watching this, you should be pleased because this stuff in the engine, this is not ever gonna be public anymore. This is playing with fire a little bit more being in here. I've rode in the engine a lot of times. I don't want people to be inspired to go do this. I don't want this to be public. It just shouldn't be done. That's nothing to worry about, that beeping sound. Basically, you if you're watching this, you got access privileges and you should do. Please for being a supporter. So we got quite a trip planned. The goal is to get all the way to the south tip of Florida from Montana. That's pretty much as far as you can do. This is gonna be a long grind of a trip. But I'm starting out in DPUs, which are warm. I should be able to ride DPUs, hopefully as far as Kansas City. I'm on a cool empty. These go to mines well, well before Kansas City. However, I can switch to another train in uh, Laurel or Sheridan. It's Valentine's Day. I just gotta say, I mean, that's nice if you've got a special somebody that's really sweet and that's touching and all that stuff. I just gotta say though, this year I'm kinda glad I'm single because I can do this trip. It's gonna be a major trip. And I just gotta say, this is impossible. You get that special someone, you're not you're not gonna go ride a train down to Florida. It's never gonna happen. Going past the yard office here. I'd like to point out this yard has got more security than a lot of the class one railroads. They got more fences, they got more things. You gotta really be paying attention to this yard. Looks like, I think we're out of here 
until we clear the yard, I'm not sure this thing isn't gonna get checked, to be honest. I got everything down here, ready to pop in, in case we stop to do the inspection. I feel like such an outlaw. I think it, I think it needs to be said, I only have positive energy towards the railroad, towards all the people. There's nothing negative going on here. 11 miles an hour. Coming to the topic of fan funding, look at this camera. It doesn't even focus anymore. It used to. I'm going to have to buy a new camera. So that costs money. But you're watching this, you've already helped. I'm not pitching. This is the Kettle House Brewery building. It's a great place to hang out and drink beer and watch trains. Just a little addendum as we're approaching the east end of the yard. There's Missoula. Not going to be back here for quite a while. The sound of that diesel engine revving up. We are out of here. Look at that pool. I wouldn't mind being in there with a, a hot day tonight, honestly, instead of here. But we're out of here. I'm thinking this calls for another cold beer. <sighs> or get off there. Basically, this coal empty here. This is going to the mine district, which is past Gillette a little bit, and then on a fork. This train is gonna fork off and go south there into the mines. Obviously, I don't wanna do that. That doesn't help getting stuck in the mines. So I'm gonna need to switch to a through train that's gonna go past the mine district and down towards Lincoln. That train is the Pasco, Kansas City. That's the one general manifest train a day that runs on here. So at some point I gotta get off. I'm either gonna do Sheridan or Gillette. I've been to both places a ton of times so I don't care that much. It'll be one or the other and then hopefully I can get the Pasco Kansas City train and stay on it to Kansas City. That's my intention. That's if it's not too slow. If it really takes its time I may have to get off somewhere on the line to get more supplies but the goal is going to be one stop here and then another train all the way into KC. As you approach Sheridan, this is the Bighorn Mountain Range here which is one of the more interesting ranges. It just kind of pops up in the middle of Wyoming. It's very remote wilderness back in there. Incredible amounts of snow up in the Bighorn Range right now. You can't help but get the feeling he loved doing these. And for the time that he had, I think it's obvious that he had enjoyed the sense of freedom that his risky life gave him. I say he had enjoyed because in early November last year, 2017, an Amtrak train operator found a body on the tracks outside Baltimore who authorities later identified as former Coast Guardsman and recent YouTube star James Stoby the Hobo Stoby. According to data maintained by the Federal Rail Administration released last week, it seems that Stobie was far from alone last year. The FRA data concluded that train deaths have grown steadily in the past 10 years, peaking in 2017. That federal agency said that 888 people died due to train-related incidents last year, and 575 of them were considered trespassers like Stobie. 
The majority of those killed while trespassing were his age as well, falling between the ages of 20 and 35 years of age. A report from the Congressional Research Service filed last month noted that Hollywood often depicts rail trespassing as an acceptable or even attractive activity. It added that the media could be enlisted to warn of its dangers. Knowing people, more media attention focusing on the dangers would just stoke more interest. On my end, it's a living part of American history and the rails that connect us all. We have made and will make every effort in this episode to make sure people know it can be a deadly hobby. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. It all began with the building of the railroads after the Civil War, and it was on the rails that many men, left broken homeless after the war, traveled to seek work during those years. And as the rails extended and connected, more men began to steal a ride. When the Great Depression of 1873 hit, homeless tramps and hobos, and yes, hobos hate to be called tramps, identifying tramps as those who won't work in return for a handout, began to flood towns and cities, and those same towns had to come up with one of two solutions, either laws and sheriffs to run them out, or ways to deal with them in a humanitarian way. And it was during and after 1873 that the hobo culture was born. Working as field hands, loggers, miners, and railroad laborers, hobos had much to do with the building of the American West and shaping industry. During the Depression, more than a million desperate people rode the rails in search of work, men and women. In America and England and much of Europe by 1890, the railroad was fast linking up remote regions, replacing travel by horse and carriage, and moving people and freight great distances in a fraction of the time it was taken by horse and wagon. With the rise of industrialism came a sharper division between the rich and the poor and a heightened awareness of countercultures, like gypsies, like homeless, vagrants, and hobos. Between 1890 and the late 1940s, it was hobos that captured the public's imagination as songwriters, artists, photographers, and authors like Jack London, John Steinbeck, and later Jack Kerouac wrote of their experiences living and traveling the rails with hobos. And magazines like Collier's and Life 
ran pictures and articles of hobo jungles or camps along railroad tracks, especially during the Depression in the 30s. We've all seen the pictures of hobos walking the tracks, all their worldly possessions packed up in a cloth wrap and tied to the end of a stick called a bindle stick, which was carried over their shoulder. They're the only culture which is identified by their dependence upon the railroad, and unlike the typical homeless, have a language and code all their own, combined with a pride of freedom to live as they please, and being self-supporting by working whenever opportunity avails them. The jungle is just a little trans-story place where you can camp while you're waiting for your train. And they were in little groves of trees where somebody'd be sitting over a fire or maybe had his bedroll out. And up in the branches of trees would be hanging things like mirrors so you could shave and sometimes even razors. You sometimes carry your own blade in a wallet, but there would be the razor and it was nearly always a Gillette and it all fit. Quite often in hobo jungles, there's residents in there, old jungle buzzards as we used to call them, that live there for weeks or months at a time. And uh, you quite often get permission from them if you want to do something. Hey, I want to wash my clothes, is that okay down there? And you know, he said, yeah, well, go downtown, bring us back some cabbage, and then you can do whatever you want. You can have some of the mulligan tonight. That's the way the, the, the way it worked. This hobo and I, we hadn't eaten for quite a long time. Four hours in that boxcar, we were telling each other what we would do if we had a dollar. He would have bought half a dozen hamburgers. I wanted a deep dish apple pie. And then we, we changed. Well, maybe in addition to an apple pie, I'd take half of the apple pie and I'd, I'd have something else. We got off the train. And on the outskirts of town, the first building was a diner. And we saw the proprietor standing in the doorway. And when we got up to where he was, uh, he called us over and uh, he said, you know, I've been watching you walk up that road and you have a hungry walk about you. I think the fact that I was young, I looked young, softened uh, the hearts of many people. You couldn't catch the freight train usually in the yard unless it was real late at night and you spotted where the bulls were, that's the railroad police. And if you knew that they weren't on your trail, you could catch one slowly as the train was moving out of the yard. But generally speaking, especially in the daylight, you'd have to go just outside the yard. Therefore, you'd have to catch the train on the run. John Steinbeck's famous hobos from his masterpiece of Mice and Men named George and Lenny, brought the migrant farm experience of the Great Depression to people's living rooms, and later, history classes. Part of and integral to the huge grain-growing industry of the American West, Depression-era itinerant farm workers like George and Lenny, mostly single men, traveled by boxcar from farm to farm in search of work, and ever since have populated the landscape of the Midwest. They were admired as much as pitied, Steinbeck called hobos the last free men, and by the late 19th century, hobos had formed their own tongue-in-cheek union, Tourist Union Local 63. They're as much a part of American history and landscape as the steam train. You had to really be on the bum asking at back doors for handouts, and uh, a handout was something they'd give to you in a sack to take, you know, they called it a lump also. And a, a knee shaker was when you'd sit down on the back porch and they'd bring you a tray of sandwiches or something to eat. And a sit down was when they'd ask you to come in and you could eat with the family. 
The origin of the term hobo is uniquely American and unknown. In Australia, they call him a swagman. Author Todd DePastino has suggested it might have been derived from the term hoboy, H-O-E, boy, meaning farmhand, or a greeting such as ho-boy, H-O-B-O-Y. Bill Bryson suggests in Made in America that it could either come from the railroad greeting ho-bo, since bo, spelled B-E-A-U, was a common form of hobo greeting, or, and this is a reach, it could have been a syllabic abbreviation of homeward, which starts with H-O, and bound, which starts with B-O. H.L. Mencken, in his book, The American Language, wrote, Tramps and hobos are commonly lumped together, but see themselves as sharply differentiated. A hobo, or beau, is simply a migrant laborer. He may take some longish holidays, but sooner or later, he returns to work. Lower than either is the bum, who neither works nor travels, save when impelled to motion by the police. If somebody come to me and called me a bum, I get mad. If I was out on the railroad tracks and there wasn't nobody looking, there ain't no telling what might happen. But if I'm in town and somebody calls me a bum, I had to tell them, no, sir, I'm not a bum, I'm a hobo. Matter of fact, do you have any work that I could do for you, sir? They definitely have their own language. Many terms like the big house, main drag, and glad rags have become a part of the English language. And here are some examples. A young, inexperienced child is called an Angelina, whereas a young, inexperienced boy, having just begun the hobo life, is called a gay boy. Gay in those days meaning fresh, synonymous with smart-mouthed. A banjo is either a small portable frying pan or a shovel. A barnacle is a person who sticks to a job for a year or more. The big house is prison, and blowed in the glass is how you would describe a trustworthy person. A bone polisher is a mean dog, and a bone orchard is a graveyard. Newspapers are California blankets, since that's one of the few places where a newspaper could actually keep you warm. A buck is a Catholic priest, usually good for a dollar, and a cannonball is a fast train. If you're boiling up to kill the cooties, that means you're boiling your clothes to kill lice. And if you heard that Bill caught the westbound, that means Bill died. Doggin' it means you caught the Greyhound bus. An easy mark is a person who can always be counted on for a handout. And a bull is a lawman. Guys who dug through garbage cans were spearing biscuits. And boarding house owners who skimped on food were known as belly robbers. Hobo foodie slang is particularly amusing. Butter was axle grease. Undercooked beans, bullets. Ketchup, red lead. Gravy was sop. And fried eggs on toast were Adam and Eve on a wrap. A thin soup of potato water and salt was known as Peoria. Hobos called bacon fat pig's vest with buttons. Whereas they could get a stack of bones or boiled spare ribs at a hash house for cheap. Polishing the mug meant washing one's face, meaning covered with dirt. Scraping the pavement meant to shave one's face. A hobo approaching a private home called slamming a gate would toot the ringer or ring the bell at the back door and a housewife might give him a ball lump. 
meaning a sandwich or slice of cake wrapped in paper as a handout. An even more generous woman might invite the hobo in for a sit-down or a meal at the table. If a hobo was lucky, the dinner was served collar and shoulder style, meaning all the dishes were put on the table and the hobo was allowed to help himself. Those who gave more than a hobo would expect were dubbed angels. Those who wanted to show off how generous they were would make a hobo eat an exhibition meal on their front doorstep. It's hard at first for a 16-year-old kid to overcome shyness and just to go up and ask somebody for money. Panhandling is hard to do, especially coming from the kind of environment that I did. But you learn it in a bloody hurry when you're hungry and haven't eaten for 24 or 36 hours. Getting food from a restaurant is kind of a technique you learn. You go walk back and forth in front of the restaurant or cafe and look for a man on a stool, usually at a counter. And you buzz right in there and speak right up to the waitress and give them the story. You know, have you got any work to do in exchange for something to eat? And sometimes they would respond. An owner usually wouldn't. He'd just say, get the hell out of here. But the kicker there is that, uh, that if you do get turned down, one or the other of these people that's beside you, there's a chance they will pipe up and say, it's okay, lady, give, give the man his breakfast. Or give him a cup of coffee and I'll pay for it. And then you're home free for the time, you know. Above us came this detective with a club. He moved down the ladder and swung at us to knock us off. He missed, but we felt the swish of his club. Then we saw his foot come down a rung lower. He wouldn't miss at this range. It was either jump off or be knocked off. The train was going faster and faster. We jumped. Young people had no support whatsoever. None. Zero. You were totally 100% on your own. And a few more. If you're on the fly, it means you jumped a moving train. And if you possum bellied, that means you rode laying flat on the top of a passenger train. Glad rags are your best clothes, and three hots and a flop means three decent meals and a place to sleep for the night. And a mulligan is a stew, and the main drag is the busiest road through town. In addition to their colorful language, the hobos developed a system of symbols or a visual code to advise others who pass the same way later as to the conditions. Hobos would write this code with chalk or coal to provide directions, information, and warning to others in the Brotherhood. A symbol would indicate, turn right here, or beware of hostile railroad police, or dangerous dog present, or food available here, and so on. Some commonly used signs, a cross signifies angel food, that is, food served to the hobos after a sermon. A triangle with hands signifies that the homeowner has a gun. A horizontal zigzag signifies a barking dog. A square missing its top line signifies it's safe to camp in that location. A top hat and a triangle signify wealth. A spearhead signifies a warning to defend oneself. A circle with two parallel arrows means get out fast as hobos are not welcome in the area. Two interlocked circles, representing handcuffs, warn that hobos are hauled off to jail. A cross with a smiley face in one of the corners means the doctor at this office will treat hobos free of charge.
Two shovels signify that work is available here, and three diagonal lines means it's not a safe house. You can check the Hobo Code displays in the Steamtown National Historic Site at Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is operated by the National Park Service. You can also find an exhibit of Hobo Codes at the National Cryptologic Museum in Annapolis Junction, Maryland. And the Hobos had their own code of ethics, which was created by Tourist Union 63 during its 1889 National Hobo Convention in St. Louis, Missouri. This code was voted upon as a concrete set of laws to govern the nationwide hobo body, and it reads this way. 1. Decide your own life. Don't let another person run or rule you. 2. When in town, always respect the local law and officials, and try to be a gentleman at all times. 3. Don't take advantage of someone who's in a vulnerable situation, locals or other hobos. 4. Always try to find work, even if temporary, and always seek out jobs nobody wants. By doing so, you not only help a business along, but ensure employment should you ever return to that town again. 5. When no employment is available, make your own work by using your added talents and crafts. 6. Do not allow yourself to become a stupid drunk and set a bad example for locals' treatment of other hobos. 7. When jungling in town, respect handouts. Do not wear them out. Another hobo will be coming along who's going to need them just as badly as you, if not worse. 8. Always respect nature. Don't leave garbage where you're jungling. 9. If you're in a community hobo jungle, always pitch in and help. 10. Try to stay clean and boil up whenever possible. 11. When traveling, ride your train respectfully. Take no personal chances. Cause no problems with the operating crew or host railroad. Act like an extra crew member. 12. Do not cause problems in a train yard. Another hobo will be coming along who will need a passage through that yard. 13. Do not allow other hobos to molest children. Expose all molesters to authorities. They're the worst garbage to infest any society. 14. Help all runaway children and try to induce them to return home. 15. Help your fellow hobos whenever and wherever needed. You might need their help someday. 16. If present at a hobo court and you have testimony, give it. Whether for or against the accused, your voice counts. Ideally, a hobo would find an empty or unused boxcar to climb into. Some would catch him on the run or flip a rattler, as in jump on a moving train. Clueless young hobos who were looking for adventure more than work would stare out the boxcar door drawing too much attention to themselves. The wiser hobos referred to them as scenery bums. Riding a loaded car could lead to getting crushed by the cargo inside, and railroad officials were concerned about the less honorable tramps who made off with merchandise. Hobos that got into reefers, or refrigerated cars, sometimes froze to death. If a hobo sat with his legs outside the side door pullman, they could be cut clean off when the train went over a hill, causing the door to slide shut. After that, he'd be known to other hobos as a happy. According to Brune's Night of the Road, 
If you couldn't find an open boxcar, you might have to ride the blinds, the front platform of the baggage car. The baggage piled up inside the car provided a nice cover, but the engine's fireman could hit a trespasser with water, coal, or hot ash. Others would ride atop or deck a train, risking that a sharp curve could throw them off. Some hobos would find a secure spot between the bumpers or on one of the car's ladders. The riskiest way to travel was to ride the rods or hold onto a specific rod underneath a passenger coach. According to Edward A. Brown's 1913 book, Broke, The Man Without a Dime, between 1901 and 1903, 25,000 train hoppers were killed on the rails, and about 25,000 more were injured, disfigured, or disabled. The slang terms for those who lost limbs on the rails include sticks, meaning lost one leg, peg, lost a foot, fingy, lost fingers, blinky, lost an eye, wingy, lost both arms, mitts, lost one or both hands, righty, lost the right arm and leg, and lefty, lost the left arm and leg. Some of the people that rode the rails and their stories coming up next. Harry Kirby McClintock, born October 8, 1882, survived the rails till April 24, 1957. Also known as Haywire Mac, was one of the earliest hobos to become well-known, having ridden the rails in 1897 and 1898 as a young man, and later becoming one of the hardest-working hobos when he became a singing celebrity. Here's a song he wrote that became a smash hit in the late 20s and during the Depression called Big Rock Candy Mountain. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning, I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountain. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk 
that invented work in the big rock candy mountains. I'll see you all this coming fall in the big rock candy mountains. The song which became a hit all over again with the release of the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou in 2000. Born in Knottsville, Tennessee, the son of a railroad cabinet maker and nephew of four boomer trainmen. His drifting began when he ran away from home as a boy to join the Gentry Brothers Dog and Pony Show. How many times have we used that expression without knowing where it came from? When the season ended, he hoboed to New Orleans and met the captain and owner of a small sternwheeler steamer that was laid up for the winter, and they became drinking buddies. While in that same town, he also found himself in the company of bums from all over the land, all of whom had the same idea, to winter there to avoid the colder weather up north. It was in New Orleans that he first developed his strong sympathy for hobos, later to be expressed in the tunes such as Hallelujah, I'm a Bum and the Bum Song. At 16, he began playing music on the streets for the promise of spare change. He was quoted to say, it was in New Orleans that I found singing in saloons could be profitable. McClintock railroaded in Africa, worked as a seaman, saw action in the Philippines as a civilian mule train packer, supplying American troops with food and ammunition, and in 1899 found himself in China as an aide to newsmen covering the Boxer Rebellion. Back in the States, he hired out to the Pittsburgh, Fort Wayne, and Chicago Railway in the Pittsburgh area. And from there, he took the Boomer Trail as railroader and a minstrel, always carrying his guitar and ready with a song. Mac lived an adventurous life and never lost his sense of humor. McClintock tells how and when he wrote Big Rock Candy Mountain. There have been a lot of sterilized versions, he says, especially with children's musicians. In these, the cigarette trees became peppermint trees, and the streams of alcohol trickling down the rocks became streams of lemonade. The lake of gin is not mentioned, and the lake of whiskey becomes a lake of soda pop. Shortly after the release of the Big Rock Candy Mountain in 1928, some local residents, as a joke, placed a sign at the base of a colorful mountain in Utah, naming it Big Rock Candy Mountain. They also placed a sign next to a nearby spring proclaiming it Lemon Springs. These names stuck and the mythical Big Rock Candy Mountain of the song became perhaps one of the most recognized geologic sites in west central Utah. And that Big Rock Candy Mountain is located a few miles north of Marysvale in, in Paiute County. Big Rock Candy Mountain there consists of altered volcanic rock in various shades of yellow, orange, red and white. It's quite a sight I hear. Hobo Harry McClintock later became an actor, appearing in several Gene Autry movies. He had moved to Hollywood in 1938 to see what he could get going in the movie business, and he wound up in a variety of serials done at Universal and Republic Studios. He tended to be a villain. He also wrote a regular column for a National Railroad magazine. He retired to San Francisco, where he made appearances on local radio and even TV. And when he died in 1957, Knoxville reporters asked around among the old vaudevillians but found only one who was old enough to remember, and only vaguely, the kid performer who was singing around town back in the 90s. Mac took the westbound in San Francisco in 1957. And then there was steam train Maury Graham, 
who is best known as five-time holder of the title King of the Hobos. Born to a broken home in Ohio, Steam Train Maury was shunted from father to mother and aunt to married siblings. In 1931, at the age of 14, Graham began riding the rails as a hobo during the Great Depression. Maury Graham adopted his nickname Steam Train in 1969 when the Golden Spike Special Steam Train came through Ohio, returning home from the 100th anniversary of the completion of the first transcontinental railroad. A New York Times article by Douglas Martin, written November 23, 2006, entitled Steam Train Maury, Five-Time Hobo King, is Dead at 89, begins this way. Steam Train Maury, who started life as Maurice W. Graham until a train whistle's timeless lament compelled him to hop a freight to freedom, and much later fame, as the first and only Grand Patriarch of the Hobos, died November 18th in Napoleon, Ohio, near Toledo. Mr. Graham was 89 and chief caretaker of the hobo myth, a cornerstone of which is the hobo's term for death, taking the westbound. Mr. Graham wrote a book about his life on the Iron Road, and he was a founding member of the Hobo Foundation and helped establish the Hobo Museum in Britt, Iowa, which is still active. At the National Hobo Convention in Britt, he was crowned king five times, when the Washington Times asked Mr. Graham in 1989 whether it was true that some hobos used deodorant, his answer was, It's a shame, but I don't know what we can do about it. The Times article ended by saying, Mr. Graham was one of the last of the authentic, undisputed, old-time hobos. Like a true hobo, by 1971 he was a day laborer with a wife, two children, and a bad hip that kept him from working much. His hanging around the house was getting on his wife's nerves, the L.A. Times reported in 1989. So one day in 1971, he hopped a freight on the edge of town with a vague idea he would relive hobo memories and come back to see his wife Wanda in a few weeks. Well, ten years later, in 1981, when Mr. Graham finally returned, he hadn't communicated with her for more than a decade. But Wanda agreed to go out for dinner and a talk. She paid, of course. He wanted to come home, and she ultimately couldn't resist his charm. It was better than living alone, she told the Times. And then there was Leon Ray Livingstone, truly a king of the road. He was a famous hobo and author, traveling under the name A Number One, and often referred to as the Rambler. He perfected the hobo symbols system, which we just explained. He wasn't a poor man. He simply preferred a life of traveling the country by train to sitting at home. In his memoir, The Ways of the Hobo, Livingston admitted that he was uneducated, but began his self-education at the age of 35. He wrote 12 books on traveling the hobo way. His books brought attention not only to the state of the homeless in America, but also to the excitement and benefits of traveling the country for amusement. He lived and published his books in Erie, Pennsylvania and Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania. He described Cambridge Springs in his book, The Ways of the Hobo, as an idyllic, delightful, and charming summer resort town known for the medicinal properties of its numberless gushing springs, which he chose as his headquarters to find a brief respite from the hardships of the road 
after the hobo lifestyle brought him dangerously close to the verge of a mental and physical collapse. As a result, Cambridge Springs became a veritable mecca to chronic hobos. There were many hobos who imitated Livingston and claimed the moniker A Number One. Due to this, Livingston was known to travel with a scrapbook of his journeys, which included a personalized note from President William Howard Taft and an autograph from Theodore Roosevelt, copies of his books, and always two $50 bills. In a rarity among hobos of his time, Livingston did not smoke or drink, and was known to always dress well and be exceptionally clean. The year after the death of author Jack London, Livingston published a memoir in which he described their cross-country adventures together during the late 19th century. The book, titled From Coast to Coast with Jack London, became the basis for the movie Emperor of the North, made in 1973, directed by Robert Aldrich. During his later life, he continued to roam the country, but he became a lecturer warning families and children against tramp life. I began out of necessity, continued because I love the life, and now because I know nothing else, he said. He died in 1944 in Houston, Texas, while having a grave marked A Number One at rest at last in a Cambridge Springs, Pennsylvania cemetery, his actual body was buried in Laurel Hill Cemetery outside of Erie. A lot of the men who made a name for themselves as hobos were IWW union members, known back in those days as Wobblies, and they used their singing and speaking talents to preach the union gospel. They chose the hobo lifestyle as a means of traveling from town to town to spread the word, and they, because of their union affiliations, were considered by many to be anarchists and revolutionaries. That's not so shocking, since their lives overlapped the times of rising socialism in Europe, where ruling families were being sent off to prison, governments and dynasties were being toppled, and socialism was running rampant. There was a huge fear of that same thing happening in America. Woody Guthrie, who wrote the song, This Land Is Your Land, was a union activist, and that song in its original form was a union statement. Here are two missing verses. Nobody living can ever stop me as I go walking that freedom highway. Nobody living can ever make me turn back. This land was made for you and me. In the squares of the city, in the shadow of a steeple, by the relief office, I'd seen my people. As they stood there hungry, I stood there asking, is this land made for you and me? The version that most people know today is pretty well watered down. Guthrie was also known to hobo his way across the country by freight car and was a huge inspiration to Bob Dylan. During World War II, anarchist that he was, he did serve with the Merchant Marine, ending up on two ships that were torpedoed and survived both of them. He would eventually succumb to a malady he had inherited from his mother, Huntington's disease, dying long before his time should have been up. Jack London, in his autobiography, The Road, wrote, Perhaps the greatest charm of tramp life is the absence of monotony. In hobo land, the face of life is protean, an ever-changing phantasmagoria, where the impossible happens and the unexpected jumps out of the bushes at every turn of the road. The hobo never knows what's going to happen the next moment. Hence, he lives only in the present moment. He has learned the futility of telic endeavor and knows the delight of drifting along 
with the whimsicalities of chance. There's a long list of celebrities who were either homeless for a short time or who took to the rails and lived the hobo life for a time. And you'll recognize a few of their names. Starting with William O. Douglas, Supreme Court Justice, homeless and hoboing during the Great Depression. William Shatner, Captain Kirk, who lived in his pickup truck for months after Star Trek went off the air in the early 1970s. Jack Dempsey, boxing champion, was homeless as a boy, and we'll do a story on him one day soon. Robert Mitchum, actor, who had a troubled youth and was put on a road gang once. Mitchum is 23 on the list of all-time favorite actors. Dr. Phil, Phil McGraw, at age 12, lived homeless with his dad in a car for a period of time. Susie Orman lived in her van in 1973, broke. Ella Fitzgerald, the singer, very tough young life, orphaned, abused, forced into prostitution to survive, hit the big time before the age of 20, spent a good time before that, homeless. And a cast of others, Drew Carey, actor, comedian Jennifer Lopez, actress Carmen Electra, Sylvester Stallone, Daniel Craig, Holly Berry. You get the idea, life wasn't always roses and lollipops for these people. Not many of them hopped trains, but they could all give you some advice if you ever failed to appreciate three squares a day and a roof over your head. And if you had a chance to see the series Mad Men, created by AMC and found now on the subscription channels, I think Netflix, which looks back at Madison Avenue ad agency life in the early 60s, there's a great episode in season one, episode eight, and it's titled The Hobo Code. It was written by Chris Provenzano and directed by Phil Abraham. The episode originally aired on September 6, 2007 on the AMC channel in the U.S. In the plot, Don Draper gets high and finds himself looking at his reflection in a mirror. Don flashes back to his childhood as Dick Whitman spent on a farm during the Great Depression. A transient approaches his family, asking for food in exchange for work. Don's father, Archie, tells the man to move on, because, as the father says, his family are no longer Christian. Dick's very religious stepmother, Abigail, refutes this claim and invites the man to stay for dinner. Over dinner, the hobo is revealed to have good manners and comes from New York. Abigail offers the man money, but Archie takes it back, telling the visitor that he'll get paid the next day, after doing some work. That night, Dick approaches the transient because his stepmother told Dick to remind the transient to say his prayers, and Dick stays to ask the man about his life. The man tells him that he once had a family and responsibilities, but he gave it all up in exchange for the freedom of the road. Dick tells the man that Abigail is not his real mother, and that he's a poor child. The man shows Dick the hobo code, a system of symbols used to communicate with other hobos. One symbol he shows Dick is used to communicate that the owner of a house is a dishonest man. The next day, the stranger completes his work, but Archie refuses to pay him as promised. As the hobo leaves the farm, Dick finds the symbol for a dishonest man carved into a fence post in front of their home, giving outside confirmation about what Dick suspects about his father. It's a powerful scene. In literature, some of the more memorable works involving hobos are The Areas of My Expertise by John Hodgman, 
a humorous book featuring a lengthy section on hobos and includes over 700 hobo names. Then there's Beggars of Life by Jim Tully. The Freight Hopper's Manual for North America by Daniel Lean. The Hobo by Nels Anderson. And The Hobo Handbook, A Field Guide to Living by Your Own Rules by Josh Mack. And both Anderson and Mack had ridden the rails in recent years and at last check lived to tell about it. Then there's the Pulitzer Prize winning book The Iron Weed by William Kennedy, which was adapted to film. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Lonesome Traveler and On the Road by Jack Kerouac. And The Road by Jack London. And there are a lot of people with something to say about train hopping. And here's a few. Pete Adland, Executive Director of the Rail Safety Charity California Operation Lifeline that promotes safety on the rails dismisses the notion that train hopping today provides an authentically American experience or any real connection with the spirit of the 1930s. He says, There was no work, there was no food, so tens of thousands of men would use the railroads to get to where they could find a job. That lure, I think, probably remains today, but I would say that it's not romantic, it's illegal, and it's dangerous. The adrenaline rush associated with riding the rails is often cited by seasoned train hoppers as their drug of choice. With a sense of invincibility, they see it as playing a game with the train. The reality, says Mr. Adland, is far different. Losing limbs is very common, he says. Loads can shift when you're inside of a car. Doors can close and lock. You can starve and die of thirst, and men do. But as long as security is patchy and the image of the lonesome hobo strumming his banjo and reaching for a cigar in the back of a gondola continues, so will train hopping and all its dangers. As one train hopper says, When I'm sitting at my desk wondering how my life got so dull, I like to think back to an afternoon sitting on an open boxcar in Utah with a stack of sheet metal clanking beneath me, basking in the sun, smoking a cigar, and gazing at the far horizon. Alright, Stubb the Hobo, long story short, uh, I'm getting a ride a little further up than Cheyenne and hoping this train, following this train, stop at the Chugwater siding. Stoby Mike Kenobi is giving me a ride and we're in pursuit. Basically Cheyenne, I don't know, you got the Air Force base there that the train runs through. A few other things, it just wasn't happening today. So I'm hoping this train is gonna stop at the Chugwater siding and I can get on there and go north. There's the train, if you can see it. I'm gonna hope again we're stopping at Truckwater. I can just run up, get my stuff on the train, and continue north. Track weren't controlled. What that means is that basically all the switches have to be thrown manually. Which is good in this case. That means if there's another train up there that, that's going to pass, both trains are going to have to stop completely. 
and throw the switches manually. Come on, this guy's got to stop, otherwise I'm gonna have to hitchhike. Ah! Hitchhike from Chugwater. You know, if this train does not stop up here, and I don't want to do that because Wyoming is probably the worst ever for hitchhiking that I've ever experienced. I've got some interesting stories from this place. Very long story short, we jumped off, my friend hit his head, and his memory disappeared for about 10 minutes. That was back in 2006, I think. So, I've got my stripes from this track for sure, coming up from Colorado State University. Right, here comes the train. Oh, I don't think he's gonna stop. I'm effed. Nope. This is the siding. He's really going slow. He's going very slow for what you expect on this line. Last time I came through, I was going about 40, 45, 50. Maybe he's gonna stop at the north edge of the siding. I don't know. Well, he didn't stop here. I don't know why he's going slow. He's going 25. It doesn't make sense. These trains used to go 50 through here. Dad likes driving around anyway, so I don't feel too guilty about getting a little bit further north. There's a place where they stop a ways up here. It's called Wendover. And I'm gonna get some of the way in the car. We're almost there on this back road. That is where the trains have always stopped going north. And even if they don't, that's where I'm getting off. It's wide open spaces. Albeit not on a train right now, but I will be soon. I'm getting dropped off here. This is Wendover, Wyoming. That's a southbound. It doesn't help. It's kind of a remote location. Kind of. Yeah, but the trains stop here. Yeah, I'm not really excited, but whatever, you know. You know, I mean, this will last, this is, I've only drank three out of this 30 pack here. All right, well, thanks for the ride. Adios. I am out here. But my knowledge of the rail network says I'll be able to get on a train. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Make sure to give a listen to Jack London's hobo story, Bulls, over at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And drop us a review, you Apple listeners. That really helps keep us in the rankings. And here's a few recent reviews for you. Titled, Superb, one of my favorites, from Jazz Rue, U.S. And this one, All Shows, Five Stars. That Voices of Treason episode was Wow. Interesting insight into what people did to spread the propaganda word. You get the idea that at least some of these broadcast traders weren't believing what they were saying, and if they did, they were just delusional. Having been born way after World War II, it was hard to relate to those broadcasts. They seemed slow compared to more contemporary advertising, which blasts you with sound bites. The voice and tone of Hanoi Hannah was a real surprise. Too bad we can't ask what Adrian Kronhauer must have thought of her. She seemed formidable. And hearing again the words of Baghdad Bob, hate to run into him in another life, if in another life he sold life insurance. He could still sell, despite the blatant and obvious evidence that, dude, the Americans are right there.
Just turn around. And that's from D-Gel. And this one, in a class by itself, five stars. It's not just that the stories are great, it's the way they're told, with unpretentious sincerity and love of storytelling. So refreshing when many podcasts come across as smarmy and condescending. Thank you for doing what you do. That from Liberty Psych, U.S. Thank you all very, very much for taking the time to send us those reviews. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. All right, what do you want to hear? That old song, Waiting for a Train? Uh-huh, that's all it. All right. A thousand miles away from home, sleeping in the rain. I walked up to a brakeman to give him a line of talk. He says, if you've got money, I'll see that you don't walk. I haven't got a nickel, not a penny can I show. Get off, get off, you railroad bum, and he slammed the boxcar door. He put me off in Texas, a state ideally love. The wide open spaces all around me, the moon and stars up above. Nobody seems to want me or lend me a helping hand. I'm on my way from Frisco, going back to Dixieland. Though my pocketbook is empty, my heart is full of pain. I'm a thousand miles away from home, waiting for a train. The Maxwell Bridge. I chose this one because it seems like it, uh, the Maxwell Bridge had some uh, fencing done to it. A little harder to access and didn't look like it was very, uh, uh, I guess you can say private-like, which I like. So I chose this one. Of course, you can tell that there's been others here. Put my tag up. And uh, seems like it's a pretty good spot. Uh, sitting here waiting for tonight. I was down at the uh, Fred Myers down in that area. I just got tired of it. A whole bunch of home bums down there camping out under under this bridge here, down at the other exit, about about a mile and a half down. Decided to come down here to be in uh, isolation, kind of like I like, like being solo, I like being by myself, and time to just 
sit, chill, and relax. Now we're never 